Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Coming up on this week's show, a long-lost Mario 64 secret is revealed. The ultimate add-on for your Commodore 8-bit. And we get the story of the Atari 2600 Plus with its creator, Ben Jones. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every week with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. Now, why don't you treat yourself to this? Have you seen The Art of the Box? Now, with more than 80,000 words and 350 full-colour images and covering 26 different artists, this is a glorious celebration of video game box art. As told by the people who created the covers with the paint, the ink, the pens and the airbrushes, you can find out more about that. Check that book out and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our lovely mates at PCBWay. Now, of course, you know about them. They offer a fully featured custom PCB prototyping service with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards. And if you want services like 3D printing and injection molding, they've got you covered as well. And of course, you know that PCBWay are big supporters of the retro community. So get an instant quote right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 410, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast, not only the show that, of course, brings you up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro gaming and technology news, but can we just say a very happy new year, the first podcast of 2024. Oh man, 2024. It's the future, guys. <laughs> See, do you, do you say 2024 or 2024? I was having this debate with someone the other day. Um, oh, that's a good question. I think I say 2024. Yeah. It does sound futuristic. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like when you were a kid and you said 2024, it'd be like jetpacks and, you know, kind of all this madness. But um, no, there's no jetpacks here. It's. <laughs> well as we do enter a new year also come we're not going to go too big on this but i just thought it might be worth pointing out to you guys that this is actually our eighth birthday of the podcast as well you might remember we started this show all the way back in the uh, the first friday of 2016 so that means eight years that we've been doing this every single week and uh don't know about you guys i always feel pumped up at the start of a new year as well you know lots of possibilities lots of incredible guests to come all the events that we're not going to be going to throughout the summer as well as we kind of leave the uh, the Christmas period and New Year behind us as well. Just to, you guys have good Christmases. You know, you're feeling refreshed now. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I went and saw lots of different friends. Uh, loads yeah. of people I haven't seen. I've probably been out more than I've been out in the whole year yeah. in one month. <laughs> and uh, I've probably ate more than I've, uh, you know, had in the whole year in one month as well. My, mine was an interesting one. Uh, I was, I, I managed to get like nine days off work. But as you guys know, and maybe many of our listeners know, uh, our book arrived <laughs> just before Christmas. So um, I pretty much spent the entirety of my time off uh, packing the book, wrapping yep. them all up. Yeah, Joe's house basically turned into a warehouse, didn't <laughs> it? It did. For the <laughs> Christmas <laughs> period, much. yeah. And you, yeah. you did a fabulous job as well. Uh, just oh, thanks thank to you. Charlie as well, because, uh, yes. uh, you, you know, your wife did a great job in... Uh, Making sure that they were packed in a very nice way. You know, she did. Uh, she 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 helped a lot. And then uh, Dan came over for, I think, three days on the trot. 
yeah as well and uh dan was our our, our superstar delivery man <laughs> driving, driving through puddles <laughs> floods storms yeah because <laughs> you guys are out in the countryside and it has been storming a lot yeah, and like, yeah. <laughs> i even remember when i was uh driving to joe's to get the books like bridges were getting shut down <laughs> there was like you know uh flooding going on i was like right i've got to avoid that one and i was driving through a storm yeah it's been a yeah been pretty chaotic it's i mean we could pretty- have been sensible we could have got the books delivered like in august or something but that wouldn't yep. be us would it that wouldn't, that wouldn't be, us. be us no before no. christmas as soon as they were done we got them delivered <laughs> and uh yeah so but i am very 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 happy to report that they have all been posted as yeah. of today as of yeah. the point of recording all of them have been wrapped and posted out um, so the and they have been arriving in people's hands the last couple of days, which is a fantastic feeling and fantastic to see. And it's been some lovely comments about it and stuff. So yeah, wicked. Well done, guys. Yeah, it's been a great start of the year for us, just seeing all your pictures coming in of people who've uh, who've been getting copies of our book that, of course, we did launch from Kickstarter uh, over a year ago now. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of new listeners since then. A lot of people still messaging me going, can I get hold of it? I miss a Kickstarter. So keep listening. Hopefully, we'll have a way for a few extra people to get hold of the book um, in the next month or so after all the backers have them. So uh, thanks again for your support on that and what an incredible start to the year. Now, it does kind of feel like we haven't done this for a long time, probably because we haven't. We had a few uh, Christmas specials, so that means we've uh, pretty much got like a month's worth of news to catch up on that we'll get into in just a second. <laughs> and um, we've kind of hit the ground running as well with an amazing guest for our first one of the new year. We're going to be getting the story of the new Atari 2600 Plus. Yeah, this was this was a great interview because... Um, you know, Ben Jones is the creator of the Atari 2600 Plus, and he's so frank and talks about, you know, the kind of decisions that they made, the yeah. the, the, the way that it was created. But also he's a local lad from Nottingham as well. So we were <laughs> we were getting on really well. And it's it's a really cool console. You've got one, haven't you? Yeah, so this is, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people um, are aware of this and probably a lot of people even got them in their, their Christmas stockings a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this is, of course, the kind of reimagining of the Atari 2600. It is a modern console from uh, PlayOn and New Atari, you could call them, uh, which is basically uh, a slightly smaller Atari 2600, if you look at it. It's basically an emulation box, isn't it? So it plays the original cartridges, which is kind of its selling point. And also we know that Atari are doing this um, this XP range where they're releasing new games and kind of reissues for the original hardware. So basically it is a way to play classic Atari 2600 games and the new titles using what closely resembles original hardware. And they were kind enough to send me one of these uh, before Christmas. And I did a YouTube video on it as well, which if you haven't watched, I'll, I'll stick that in the in the episode description. But also, I mean, I thought, since I was chatting to their PR agency, Atari's, I said, any, any chance we can get someone from the team on just to kind of tell us a bit about this new system on the podcast. So uh, they went straight to the top and actually, yeah, like you said, Ravi, got us Ben Jones, who is the guy that made it. And it is interesting because I did a video on this and I did point out, you know, a few things that I wasn't happy about, about the system. And, you know, a few other people have done that as well. And I thought, you know, I'd put a few of these points to Ben and a few of the criticisms. And you're right, it doesn't hold back. He's very forthright, isn't he? And just explaining why that happened and, you know, even some of the fixes they're going to be doing as well and some of the the updates that we can expect from the the system because it is firmware upgradable. So, you know, yeah. a lot of the points that we raise are going to be fixed in... Uh, I think an update came out for it yesterday, actually, at the time of recording, um, which I haven't tried yet. But it is interesting to see because he was an Atari kid, wasn't he? He grew up playing it when he was little. 
Yeah, we did. And, and and when we first heard about it, we weren't really sure about it. We were mm. like, oh, you know, a, a console that's going to gonna play the old cartridges and stuff. And, and we weren't really sure about the appeal. But, um, yeah, it's, 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 it seems to be doing really well and, uh, you know, quite popular as well. Yeah, so we find out all about the uh, the making of it, kind of the history of, uh, you know, the design of it and basically giving it all of these modern conveniences that are in there as well and how the community's influenced the 2600 plus and kind of what it means to him to be part of, you know, Atari's legacy now as well. So if you uh, got an Atari 2600 plus for Christmas or you're interested in one or you just want to hear the story of kind of resurrecting the system, a really interesting guy, you're going to really enjoy our first guest of 2024, Ben Jones, creator of the Atari 2600 plus, will be on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, let's not hang about then because we have got a a lot of stories to get through, pretty much a month's worth of news. We've kind of picked out some of the biggest ones from uh, the last few weeks, including this story that I've seen absolutely everywhere. And I was watching Modern Vintage Gamers' brilliant video on this before Christmas. This is that there has been a secret hiding inside the PlayStation 1 game Alien Resurrection for the last 23 years. Yeah, this is uh this is really cool. I've seen I've seen this doing the rounds, like you say, everywhere. So I think there was a few tricks with yeah. the PS1 to get it to play copied games. Um the what the I had a chipped PS1 uh growing up. Naughty which boy. Was, yeah, naughty naughty. Which uh I'm not hundred percent sure what the actual process is there, but they called it chipped and it was something to do with the laser, and then there was another way which I know Ravi's familiar with where the, the swap trick where you'd have to do it really fast. Yeah. Could, where you, you kind of like keep the lid open and stuff like that. But, uh, the reason this is kind of getting notoriety is, uh, that Argonaut studios, uh, who made famously made Star Fox, then also made, uh, alien resurrection for the PS one into the year 2000. And one of their main programmers who is called, uh, Martin Piper, has uh, come forward to say that there was a anti-piracy cheat code in there <laughs> within the, within the game built within the game. Uh, well, uh, what it seemed to be was it was so you say there was the mod chip, but then there was also the swap trick, yeah, which is another one. And of course, you needed the lid open. Yeah, people would jam a bit of paper in, or there'd be a bit of pencil. Um, but this, to me, it's it's a code that acts as a boot disc basically but yeah. it's on a, it's on a commercial release which is absolutely mental that this got approval and that this uh, went through you know giving you the ability to do CDRs in there and i guess it was like a uh, something left from uh, you know development when they were testing stuff but um uh, yeah to have a, a essentially a boot disc inside a commercial release for the PlayStation 1 yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you're, you're spot on there. I don't think it was, you know, I don't think it's a case of everybody knew it was on there. And then when it went to, you know, whoever, I think 20th Century Fox or Sony, when, you know, the publishers of the game, because it was obviously the Alien franchise, they probably didn't know it was in there. It was probably left in there, as you say, from from testing when they were programming the game. The reason was, I mean, if, if you watch Modern Vintage Gamer, he mentions it at the end, kind of why it's in there, because apparently okay. Alien Resurrection was, they were planning on it being a multi-disc game. So basically there was some code in there. Because, I mean, obviously when you open the PlayStation's lid, the console resets, doesn't it? Yeah. But they were working on some code to basically allow you to open it and then put the second disc of the game in without the system resetting. So they were testing that out. That's why that code's in there. So, yeah, yeah, what it basically does is it allows you – you do have to keep the lid of the system open for this to work uh, by jamming that bit of paper in as well, you know, so it doesn't recognise it. But it does mean that what you can do is take the Alien Resurrection disc out – 
put this code in, which is basically kind of going around the D-pad a couple of times and then pressing the uh, the triangle and circle button, you know, in, in succession. Yeah. And then you can put a burnt disc in and it will then boot that CDR. Yeah. So obviously it's a lot less stressful on the hardware than doing the swap trick that involves you kind of quickly pulling a disc off and putting another one on and swapping them back and forth. So this would have been a game changer yeah. if we knew about this back in the day. Yeah. And it, yeah. and it was sitting there all that time. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I love. I love these things, you know, and I love that people wait, you know, to make sure they don't get into trouble. <laughs> like if we revealed this in like 2001, you know, it probably would have been yeah. uproar, but it's like, yeah, 23 years later, 24 years later, people don't care now, which I think, you know, it's funny. But yeah, don't you have to, you have to hold some buttons as well when you actually boot the game up, the Alien Resurrection game up as well. You have to hold some of the L and R buttons. Yeah, uh, it's not easy to do by the looks of it. Yeah. It's quite, yeah, I was going to kind of mention it, how to do it, but yeah. He does it on a PS1 as well, like ONE, you know, the later, yeah. smaller yeah. ones. And I remember the swap trick was easier on the original PlayStations. Oh, right. Um, and they're much harder, you know. They, I, I don't know if they developed something in there to to prevent people from doing it. But um, you know, I remember you had to be really fast to get it to work on the uh, uh, smaller PS. Yeah, yeah. But if we knew about this back in the day, I mean, God, the mod chip market would have. I mean, this probably would have been the biggest selling PlayStation One game. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Would have won for them. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they do mention that. Yeah, I mean, this was basically that hidden code in there to maybe boot a second disc of the game that they didn't mention to Sony. Because as you said, then if Sony knew about it, they would not. I, was, have let I that always go wonder through. how many games have like hidden codes in there. Yeah. They're still to be discovered. Yeah, it's interesting. I know there was stuff like um, I, know, I think there was an action replay for the the PlayStation One, wasn't that? I don't think I don't yeah. know how, how popular they were, but there were uh, there were exploits that were done on the memory cards as well. Yeah. So yeah, uh, exactly. I know with action replays, I know I've never used a PlayStation One action replay but i know and like you know the amiga for example you can kind of disassemble the code and kind of see how it works which i imagine would make finding hidden codes like this easier in games with hardware like that and i mean today i mean obviously we've got all the the rom files and the isos are kind of dumped on the internet so i imagine kind of going through them even in something like a hex editor or something is probably easier than it used to be so um yeah i mean like you said the fact that this has remained hidden in there something that would have been such a big deal 23 years ago it does uh Make you excited to find out what else is kind of lurking in games that we haven't discovered yet. So obviously we'll keep you posted as we hear more, but yeah, very cool trick. And if you want to check out that video from Modern Vintage Gamer, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Now, speaking of things that are kind of long lost, um, this is very cool. I must admit, this wasn't something I was even aware was a thing. I mean, I do remember back in the day watching Bad Influence on TV and uh, seeing when uh, Violet Berlin was in Japan and she went to uh, Space World and she saw mm. that kind of first preview of the first public showing, wasn't it, of the Nintendo 64. And I remember watching that and being like, wow, you know, this system that had been hyped up for so long and kind of seeing that Mario 64 demo on the screen. Also, there's Kirby's Air Ride as well, which obviously was never released on the the N64 and that guy's in the end. But um, I do remember it being a very impressive demo of the system as well. But actually, it turns out there was something kind of hidden in there that we didn't see on UK TV, but there is a, a very brief glimpse of Mario 64 in its early stage that was going to be a multiplayer game with Luigi in there too. I remember at school, there were so many rumours, like if you get all 120 stars and then do... You know, 50 backflips and you can get on the roof, you find Luigi and Luigi becomes playable and mm. the game becomes two player. And it's really funny because it's like, there's all these rumors 
that you know were on the playground and stuff and they these went well on to you know into the 2000s you know people you know i remember at my school talked about them and stuff and uh yeah interestingly it's now kind of coming out that not in the final game but obviously in the very very early builds of the game that you know this this was there was some truth behind it so as you say this is from this is footage from space world in 1995 and uh, this has recently been uploaded onto a now in game youtube channel it's called and it's from a Japanese, it's footage of a Japanese like news outlet variety show showing it off. So unfortunately, the footage isn't the clearest. It's a little bit blur- blurry and it's it's a camera filming a screen. You know, from a distance. Been, yeah, from a distance. <laughs> it's then been digitized. Um, but in there, you do get a few seconds of footage. Like you say, not only Luigi playable, but also Luigi and Mario being played at the same time. Um, so I guess in very early development of Mario 64, it was intended to be a sum, you know, simultaneous two-player co-op game with Mario and Luigi. But ultimately, obviously, we got no two-player and we got no Luigi in uh, the original Mario 64. So, but I found I just found it really interesting that that then became a rumor. Mm. You know, like you know that he was in there, like buried in the game etc um so i found that really really interesting there were some other differences like the graphics are slightly different uh the hood design of the game is different um you know some footage of bows away looks slightly different but yeah the, the biggest thing is is the glimpse it's literally like a blink and you'll miss it luigi and mario on screen yeah if you look time. it's like literally you can see mario on one screen there's a monitor next to it with luigi yeah. in it. and it's like yeah yeah i mean it, it's on screen for maybe a second yeah yeah um but it's, it, it's cool that someone spotted that yeah, no, I think this footage and to see it. But what's interesting about that demo as well is, I mean, there are a few people who are saying the frame rate on it is actually better than the yeah. release version, which, which considering there was like two-player code in there as well, yeah. the fact that it ran quicker with that seems a bit bizarre. It, it probably wasn't running off the N64 hardware. It was probably running off, you know, the, the supercomputers. <laughs> yeah, silicon graphics behind silicon the Silicon graphics behind there, yeah. <laughs> it would be really hard to hide the silicon graphics machine, wouldn't it? <laughs> Under that a blanket. Yeah, that's yeah. how they used to do it, yeah, behind curtains and stuff, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shows. yeah. Could, be, could be a good point there, Joe. But it does make you think, I mean, you know, we mentioned about kind of that hidden code in Alien Resurrection. I wonder if that Luigi code is still buried in Mario oh. 64 somewhere. Maybe I doubt it. You know, the amount of it's it's a Nintendo game. It's a popular yeah. Nintendo game. People have gone through that code. You know, with a fine tooth comb. Yeah. I'm surely we would know by now. But you know, there might be at Nintendo headquarters somewhere. Very early build of that with uh, Luigi in there still. Yeah, because there was a few builds in the Giga Leak and stuff as well, but I don't think anyone's found that. You know, no. I imagine this is a very early build of it. Yeah, um, but um, it does look very cool. It makes you wonder how it would have played as well. I can't, I can't get my head around being able to. I guess maybe it's if it was, you know, two plays. How would that work with the cameras and stuff? Well, it's like that's that's the thing. So in the article I was reading, it did say, um, and and you know, this is just. I don't think there's any truth in this. It's just speculation and rumors. But the Nintendo sixty four DD, you know, the disc drive did have limited online capability in Japan. Yeah. Um, so they were saying perhaps it was going to be for that and then you would play on separate N64s. Oh, right. Interesting. Um, but that just feels so like, that feels so 2024 for 1996. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> feels so futuristic. You know what? If they had released that though, that probably would have been a system seller for it, wouldn't it? You know, yeah. For the, the DD yeah. and like online capability. Yeah. It could have meant we had an online gaming like popular, you know, much earlier than it was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah. 
you know the dd never came out it didn't it sold really poorly in japan and that was it wasn't it yeah so yeah yeah how things could have been so if you want to get a little glimpse of uh, that early footage you know like you said blinking you'll miss it but there is a little clip there of luigi um in mario 64 buried in this uh 20 minute footage it's interesting just to look at it as well because i mean it's obviously all in japanese but i think just looking around the uh the show as well because i mean that was you know such a big event wasn't it back then when we got that first public glimpse at the N64, so it was worth watching. So if you want to check out that video, I will link that in our show notes as well. Now, of course, we do cover what's been happening in the world of Nintendo, Sega, consoles, Sony, all that kind of thing. We do cover computer news on the podcast as well, Ravi. You know, I mean, you oh, like yes, to get a bit, a bit nerdy about this kind of stuff, don't we? <laughs> Including, yeah, yeah. I, I always love seeing this, assuming that adds a load of new functionality to the Commodore 64. Well, this is like an all-in-one kit, and mm. it's cheap. And pretty amazing, the amount of stuff that you can do. So it's called the Teensy ROM. And uh, it's uh, basically based on a, a, a Teensy 4.1, which is um, a development board that runs uh, off the ARM CPU. Has it looks a bit like com- a Raspberry Pi Pico, doesn't it? A little yeah, board, and, it, and, it, and it has obviously the CPU power in there, but it also has uh, micro USB support as well. It's uh, got... You know, you could put an SD card in there as well, but his board expands it. So um, this is a cartridge that's for the C64 and the 128 as well. And uh, the amount of stuff you can do on it is absolutely mental. So it's it's got obviously super fast loading in there. It's going to load a lot faster than your cassette. It's got um, MIDI and you can host MIDI and uh, it's got an interface for it as well. And it's got, you know, USB support in there. So you can have USB sticks, put files off the USB stick, load the ROMs in there. Um, That's very cool. It looks really cool. And you know what I love about this, the price point as well. You know, it's $59 um, fully assembled, which is is just mad considering what you're getting for that. And and we've seen a lot of these kind of carts and cartridges and add-ons and stuff and they have been quite pricey in the past. And um, kind of seeing this and seeing that this is open source as well uh, really impresses me. And it uh, comes from a guy called Travis Smith. Yeah, now you can get these. Like you said, I mean, the, he's uploaded the whole thing onto GitHub. So, you know, there's, um, you know, you can make your own. You know, there's instructions there with, he said actually minimal soldering. So apparently it's not that difficult to make. Or you okay. can buy them fully assembled from him as well. A few things you mentioned there, which I think are awesome. Um, the fact that, I mean, I've got stuff like uh, an SD2 IEC, you know, to load off um, SD cards, which, you know, that they're very common for the Commodore 64. But I think, like you said, having this kind of all-in-one cartridge where you can load, you know, stuff like uh, program files, or it even loads, um, it's got ROM emulation, so you can load, like, cartridge ROMs, the CRT files, they're called, .CRT. So basically, Commodore 64 cartridge games, you yeah. can load straight into memory from these two. Um, also, it's got internet connectivity, so you can... Uh, <laughs> and a, and a web via, browser as well, which is... Just absolutely mental to have that attached. It reminds me of of something like, you know, the vampire on the Amiga that did a lot of stuff, but obviously that had all the CPU stuff added in there as well. But just the the amount of connectivity and the amount of uh, multifunctional things, I think, I think these are going to sell really well. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously with the online connectivity, I mean, there's an Ethernet port on here, so um, you can connect to, I mean, you know, there is obviously web browsers. You can get very rudimentary ones. As I think there's like a... A 64 version of Lynx, you know, the, the text-based browser. But what you really want to do with this is, I mean, obviously, first point is you can transfer files 
from your PC over your network, 264, which is very cool. But browsing BBS is Vitalnet. I mean, to me, that is like, you know, the thing that I'd use this for. Because I do have, like I said, I've got the SD card reader. I've also got a network card for my 64 as well. But these are kind of all separate devices. So having yeah. these all in one thing, I think is very cool. And and the MIDI um, is absolutely mental on there as well. So Yeah, um, I was going to talk can, about that next, yeah. You can stream from your PC MIDI files directly to the SID. And yeah. uh, that's pretty pretty mad. And for, for musicians and stuff, that that's going to be great for, you know, composing and having a, a, a setup with lots of different devices, synthesizers, stuff like this, and having your CC64 adding, uh, acting as a MIDI device. Yeah, I mean, you can even plug USB MIDI keyboards in and basically play the SID chip from yeah. a USB keyboard. That's awesome, isn't which, it? Uh, yeah, that opens up a whole new, you know, dimension there as well. And I think if you obviously you've kind of, uh, I mean, you mainly do DJing with systems. You've got, I know you've got like an Atari ST in your Amiga DJ setup now. You could try a 64 for a bit. I mean, would this be something that might make you kind of think of, I mean, I imagine being able to play the SID chip over yeah, your Amiga well, sets. I'd, I'd just love to cool. get into the whole world of MIDI because once you get into that, you know, you you can have all sorts of controllers and devices added mm. to it, different machines and you could add your C64 to this kind of network and get that beautiful SID sound. Yeah, which I mean, you know, the SIDs are like, you know, the, the gold standard for like, you know, 8-bit music, aren't they? So uh, really cool to see this expansion. I think, you know, even for me, I'm not a musician, but I think just having a cartridge with stuff like, you know, the SD card reader and USB support and an Ethernet adapter in there as well, all in one device, like you said, for $59. If you want to and get and, mode, and I think, I think it's, really you know, it's going to get smaller, it's going to get more support faster because it's open source as well, yeah. which is a, a really cool thing. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking at this already thinking it could replace a lot of my kind of aging devices now. So uh, definitely tempted by this. If you want to get a hold of one, um, I'll link up the website. Looks like they're only available in America at the moment. So obviously you'll have to import them from Europe or maybe there's, you know, it's a GitHub. Maybe someone's going to make them over here soon mm. as well. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. If you want to check it out, I'll link that up in the show notes as well. Now, have you played your Super Nintendo lately, Joe? I haven't unfortunately Whoa. and playing with fire here i know this has got me worried this has i need to fire <laughs> it up sure well this is a bit of story i mean this is something that's kind of been known for a while and i think we've kind of touched on it on the podcast before that we know the uh, the super nintendo the cpu in there's got revision a and revision b mm. varieties and i think it's generally been known that the revision a systems are less reliable uh, but this has been something that's kind of been on on social media quite a bit over the last month. And um, there's a few modders who kind of started this conversation, also a, uh, a retro repair specialist called Fenris Wolf Retro and a modder called uh, Kona Kona, who basically started this conversation on, uh, on Twitter slash X, basically saying that, you know, they won't work on Revision A Super Nintendos because basically the CPU can die in them if you look at them the wrong way. <laughs> and there's also been stories about apparently people, I mean, if you check this thread, it's interesting, people saying that they've had their revision A Super Nintendos basically in a cupboard for a couple of years and then taken them out and they've just completely died. The CPUs mm. failed on them without them doing anything. So this has kind of sparked, you know, a bit of panic in the, the retro community. People thinking, you know, the Super Nintendos have basically got a ticking time bomb inside of them which is is pretty horrifying the thing that gets me about it and the worry of it is, is there's no like known prevention it is just no. a case of it could just happen mm. and you know and 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 i can't imagine it's a massive problem because people have only just started talking about it 
and it's not quite as big as like you know the batteries in the Game Boy games you know like the Pokemon games which you know you know uh, leaking everywhere or just dying and stuff like that and it's not as common as that because we're only just starting to hear about it but it does make me worry that in like you know the next five or ten years time you know SNESs are going to become and they are already quite expensive you know uh, you struggle to find a SNES for you know 50 60 quid these days don't you know kind of shooting up in price but it just made me worry that in five years time is is the super nintendo going to be like a, a working super <laughs> nintendo going to be like a really rare console like an all of a sudden it turns out they've only got like a, the cpus have only got like 30 years on them ish before they die and it's just yeah. the early ones are dying now you know um, this is complete speculation and just my mm. my, my concerns and it's, worries but it's amazing yeah. you know all this stuff that we kind of collect and we we all enjoy was never meant to last you no, know, more it. than a few yeah. years and i'm sat here with a 30 year old machine next to me still going and you know you you're kind of plugging and patching and trying to keep it going i hope ultimately that there'll be like a little clip on chip that you could kind of clip on top of it and it will bypass it and then uh you know maybe an fpga or something that yeah. would uh, uh be a little replacement for it but yeah it's it's tough but you know these things happen um I think, Dan, you just had your, I think, five-year-old television just completely go. And, you know, I've got a CRT here that's been running uh, for years. (laughs) That is, Yeah, because, I mean, they do say, you know, they don't make them like they used to. And I think that that is true because, yeah, I mean, I I had my 65-inch 4K, you know, HDR, all the works, you know, Sony Telly that I bought when I moved into this house. So that would have been 2018. And that just completely died over over Christmas. Um, originally, it wouldn't yeah, turn I had on a digital that. radio die over Christmas as well. Actually, so, yeah. well, I thought it might have been the power supply. Ordered one off eBay for like six quid. Tried swapping it over, didn't work. So in the end, I had to you know fork out for a new TV, which obviously in January, just after Christmas, with my tax bill due end of the month. Great timing, Sony. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, you're right, Ravi, completely what you said then, the fact that they make these devices to kind of... Because I did Google, didn't I? At the time, I, I sent it over to you guys the other day, like, what is the average lifespan of like a TV? And it was like, it said like four to six years. And I was yeah. like, you know, I said that to you, Ravi. I said, I've got like a, I've got two 30-year-old CRTs here that are still kicking just fine. Yeah, and, and you know, Nintendo is not a company that I'd expect to have... Um you know, failures or, or, or necessarily use um, cheap components like a Commodore or a few others, you know. Well, I mean, that that is another system that kind of sprung to mind when they're talking about these CPU failures. I mean, you, you know, the Commodore Plus 4 and the Commodore 16 had like an infamously weak CPU in there in terms of reliability. It was, you know, uh, I think Commodore had some new like kind of chip fab technology they were using at the time. They're kind of moving over to a, a new process and they're like, you know, really, really unreliable. Again, you know, one of these where you look at it the wrong way and one day they just die. Uh, but luckily there have been people that have been kind of adapting standard 6502s to work in there or 6510s. And people have been doing FPGA replacements for the the CPUs in the Commodore Plus 4. So that does kind of fill me with confidence. That, yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're right, Ravi, there will be some solution for, like, you know, replacements in the future, I think, because these systems are so loved. I mean, they're sold like, what, 50 million Super Nintendos. Yeah. I can't imagine the community are not going to take this seriously and come up with some alternative. Um, but it just make me wonder how many, what's kind of the split with revision A and revision B systems? Yeah, I guess. I mean, was there, I, I know we've spoke about this before, but was there an easy way of determining, determining if one was revision A or revision B? Yeah, I mean, it might be written on it. If you open it up and have a look inside, maybe. Yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm literally looking at mine now. You know, it's sat to the right of me and I'm like, do you still work? Or have you just like, what revision are you? 
So I'm definitely going to test it out tonight. You know, I've got systems practice. like that where I think if I don't turn it on, it works. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. In my head, it still yeah. works. Yeah, it's so in it's perfectly fine, good yeah. working order because I've not played it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it might be worth just getting your, uh, your SNES out over the next couple of weeks and giving it a try. And, you know, just uh, not that there's much you can do about it at the moment if it does die, but from, you know, getting a bit depressed. <laughs> and if it does yeah. work, yeah. there's not a lot you can do about it because it might still die. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> these are the perils that we have, you know, being a retro gaming enthusiast. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it is it is good that people are making this a thing and, you know, bringing attention to this problem. So I think that is a way that it, people will find a solution to it um hopefully at some point so uh fingers crossed you know not so many super nintendos die in 2024 now while we're talking about nintendo um i thought this was quite interesting obviously we think of the game boy and we think you know what uses does that system have obviously the main thing is we'll play video games on it back then but actually it turns out that there are actually a few more uses to your your humble game boy than you might think of the game boy has had it's such a diverse like little you know handheld so we obviously we already know you know it was used you it was compatible with certain sewing machines mm. for like for designs and patterns that could be used um if i remember rightly wasn't there a fishing like a fishing yeah, there, there was a little thing. office office suite as well the like office PDA, suite, we talked yeah, about that, yeah we've talked about that but there was a, the official release for like the, the sonar fishing thing i think mm. hopefully i'm not making that up but i can see that in my mind's eye no, no, I, not, I, I remember the sonar <laughs> fishing yeah um and obviously a games console, you know, a <laughs> handheld games console, you could play games on it. Um, but this is really interesting. It was used as part of uh, the Peugeot, the uh, the car brand, Peugeot, Peugeot. Yeah. Uh, their Peugeot vehicle diagnostics in the early 2000s, <laughs> um, which, you know, is doing the rounds at the moment. And maybe people, you know, maybe this is old news. Maybe people knew this because of surely this will be something that was spoken about at some point. But yeah, um, it's been, you know, uh, a according to a Twitter slash X user um, who is called X, X underscore Q-tiv, so X oh, I still can't get used to that <laughs> name, X. Um, <laughs> has uh, been talking about this and, you know, posted some pictures, but they were used um, to essentially use a, a, a kind of link cable to plug into mopeds, Perjo oh, yeah. mopeds, and they would, they would, they would kind of do run the diagnostics on there, such as like the engine speed, you know, how many volt, you know, battery volts, the engine temperature. Um, and obviously it wouldn't just plug in. There was a, uh, a cartridge that would come with it. And this was like a commercial kit that you could buy, like as a mechanic. The you Peugeot know, Diag 200 kit, it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you would just, you could buy it and you could either buy it where it would just come with the cartridge and the cable, or you could buy it and it would come with a Game Boy Color or in later revisions, a Game Boy Advance. Um, and any normal Game Boy Advance or Game Boy Color was compatible with it, um, with the cartridge and the cable. Um, it was just whether you had one at home already or whether you needed to buy one. And yeah, you would you would plug it in and it would it would tell you about, you know, what was wrong with the with the with the uh not what was wrong with it, but give you some stats and it would also give you some codes of what was, you know, going on with the the moped and stuff. But I just think that's mind blowing that more people haven't spoke about it, or it probably it's going to turn out now that there's loads of videos on it from like ten I, years ago. I find it kind of weird because in this article they're saying, you know, um, it it kind of makes sense because you know the Game Boy had a screen and all of this, yeah. PDA, but you know the Game Boy Advance was quite late, and uh, so was the Game Boy Color. There were lots of other options for stuff like stuff that we've seen before has been, you know, the original Game Boy, which yeah uh, was out at a time when they were real. You know, uh, uh, there was a lack of decent LCD stuff. Um, 
I find it amazing that this is kind of packaged, but also I've just got this image of someone at a pit stop, you know, in their Peugeot, <laughs> and the guy runs out with a Game Boy and plugs it in. It does make me realise why sometimes mechanics take so long on repairs. It's in the desert, like playing Mario Kart on it, like, oh, I'll get to it, it later. Could have been. It could have been the case. Playing Pokemon, a bit of Tetris. Um, in your spare time, and then <laughs> do some diagnostics. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, apparently the reason this was kind of made was, you know, because yes, there was, you know, uh, Palm Pilots and stuff like that. And, you know, there was uh, mobile phones and stuff, but generally the Game Boy Color and Advance were cheaper than them at that yeah. time. So that was kind of like the thought process behind it. And obviously, like you say, Ravi, they have the nice screen and stuff like that. Well, well we saw ages ago that a Garage was still using a C64 um, yeah. to do yeah. diagnostics. So, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. There, there is a kind of weird relationship here with... Uh, consoles and games and like old computers and uh, uh fixing cars it does make sense as well i mean yeah obviously it's commodity hardware like you said joe they're, they're a lot cheaper than dedicated solutions i imagine and because these devices were you know they're designed for kids to play on so they're quite rugged yeah. as well aren't they so in like an environment like a garage i imagine you know it's probably quite a reliable machine yeah um, that's a good point yeah, yeah. but it is quite you know it's quite quirky to see like a yeah. <laughs> like walking in the garage and seeing all the, the engineers around playing on what looks like playing on game boys yeah you, you can wipe, we need to wipe it down with your greasy fingers you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> need to figure out what's wrong with this uh, moped Quick, get the Game Boy SP out. Yeah, it's finished Tetris, the next level, mate. So if you want to check out that little uh, post on X, I shall link that up. And of course, all the rest of the stories that we talk about, you don't have to Google around. You find them every week in the show notes on your favourite podcast app or head to our website at theretrohour.com. Now, we do have a patron for this podcast as well. A little reminder that we are, you know, we're obviously into the new year now. And um, hopefully you enjoyed the little bonus episode that we dropped last week. Because, I mean, we always take the week between... Christmas and New Year off. That's kind of the one week. You know, we do 51 episodes a year. We take that week off. And uh, we had a word to our patron community, didn't we, in Discord, Ravi? You know, I was chatting to them. We were like, uh, well, should we put something out in that week? We weren't really sure what, just to kind of fill that gap. And a lot of people in there like, why don't you put an After Hours episode out to everyone so they can kind of check out what they're missing if they're not a patron member? Yeah, and uh, I, f- I think that worked really well as well yeah. because uh, – that that gap's weird as well. I felt weird not doing the podcast every yeah. week. It's like, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, such a integral part of our lives. We did have a few people message over again. Have you guys messed up and accidentally released the, the latest After Hours to everyone? It was intentional. It was an older episode from about a year ago. It was the one where we, uh, we, we got Joe on the Amiga 500 Mini. I put that one out ah, to yes. everyone. So, oh, uh, God, you didn't yeah. tell me it was that one. That was the one, Joe, yeah. <laughs> we picked our favourite Amiga games, so uh, definitely a good listen if you uh, if you want to check that out. But if you want more of that, if you join us on Patreon as a gold member or above, you unlock, I think it's going to be 39 episodes of the After Hours oh. podcast, some of which are like two hours long. So plenty of extra listening in January. And, of course, they're with us just celebrating our eighth birthday. That doesn't mean this month all the renewals are going to come out, you know, website renewal, audio hosting, all of that. So very good time if you want to support this podcast and make sure that we can continue throughout 2024 and also get an invite to the first patrons hangout of the new year that will be coming up at the end of the month as well, where we get all our patrons together. Everyone's invited to come on, geek out with us for a couple of hours on a Sunday evening. So if you want to find out all about that and join our wonderful patrons community, all the details are on our website at theretrohour.com. And we did have a few new signups over Christmas as well. And of course, we do welcome in our new patrons into the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming. And that is the Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. <laughs> and let's give a very warm welcome to our latest patrons, including Scott Coulter Hunt Frank 
and Ron Van Sherp, who all joined us on Patreon over the last couple of weeks. We massively appreciate your support. And if you'd like to join our wonderful patrons community, all the details to join us right now are on our website at theretrohour.com. You're never going to let me re-record that intro. <laughs> You're always going to use the old one. <laughs> Maybe we could open that up to, a, I don't know, some kind of competition. I know, like, on, if you listen to This Week in Retro, they have the, the Dave's housekeeping jingle. Maybe yeah, our community yeah. can make it a Ravi Hall of Fame, or maybe not even with Ravi in it. It's like a Hall of Fame jingle. <laughs> a little challenge that we put out there. If you if you uh, if you fancy a little uh, creative challenge in January, then uh, please do get in touch. Now, before we get into our chat with this week's special guest, Ben Jones, telling us the story of the new Atari Twenty Six Hundred Plus. Let's welcome on a brand new supporter of the Retro Hour podcast, and this is our wonderful friends at AG1. Now, I think this has come in at a very good time because you might notice that Ramby is sounding rather chipper at the moment. And that's because, I mean, you know, you get to this time of year, weather's awful and we're getting about, what, six hours of daylight here in the UK at the moment. And it's something that's actually become a big part of our routine over the last couple of weeks and uh, really made us change the way that we think about daily nutrition is AG1. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's it's one of those times of year where we've ate too much and uh, yeah. I'm kind of out of exercise and, um, you know, I want to get a bit more focus, energy and uh, work on my immunity and health as well. Yeah, now AG1, it's not just another supplement. What it is, it's actually a comprehensive and very convenient blend of over 70 high quality ingredients. Now, the idea is it supports your mental and physical health. And the best part is it is so easy to make, isn't it? All you do in the morning, one scoop once a day into a glass of water, then you just mix it up as well and you get a powerful dose of vitamins, minerals, nutrients, everything you need to keep your energy up and your mind sharp on these dark, wet, wintry mornings. And I don't know about you guys, but, you know, after after having this, I've definitely noticed an improvement in my kind of my focus and my energy levels as well. Because I know, I don't know if you guys are the same, but often when we get to this time of year, I don't know if I've got that kind of SAD, but, you know, with not having maybe it's a vitamin D deficiency this time of year, my energy levels normally in winter are nowhere near what they are in the summer. Well, I'm also not a master chef, you know, yeah. I, I, uh, all my food doesn't contain the, the nutrition that I kind of need. So it's it's really good to have that. And the good thing about it is, I mean, rather than having like, you know, a black coffee or something that I often used to have in the morning to get me going, you don't get that caffeine crash as well. And obviously it gives you the immune health, you know, it's all going around again at the moment, isn't it? You know, everyone's sick right now. So it is packed with all the stuff you need, your vitamin C's, zinc, other key nutrients to keep your immune system in top shape as well. So if you want to try this out, I mean, if you're wondering about the quality of it as well, this is actually NSF certified for sport, meaning it's gone through all the rigorous testings and verifications. So you can trust what you see on the label is exactly what you're getting. Nothing more and nothing less. So if you want something to help you out on, you know, these cold, wintry mornings that we have here in the UK right now and uh, help your immune system out as well, something really convenient, why don't you give AG1 a try? And of course, you know, we always get you the best deals as well. So actually, as a bonus, just for Retro Hour listeners, if you go to this link, drinkag1.com slash Retro Hour, that is drink, letter A, letter G, number one, dot com slash retro hour you will get a free one year supply of vitamin d and five free ag1 travel packs with your first purchase so head to that website right now drinkag1.com slash retro hour i'll stick it in the show notes as well and a massive thank you to our wonderful friends at ag1 for their support of the show Right then, next, we are going to be joined by our first guest of 2024, and it is an incredible one as well. The creator of the brand new Atari 2600 Plus, Ben Jones, is next on the Retro Hour podcast. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. 
need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. I came from a low-income family that was, that was struggling. You see how hard life can get. GCE became a part of my life because I don't want my family to fall back into that. I never thought education would take me this far. I'm still young. I still have a lot to do in my life and just want to get things done the way I want with a good education under me. I'm Stacy, and Grand Canyon University helped me find my purpose. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. And uh, really excited to talk about this incredible new console that um, I did a YouTube video on last month. You may have actually found one in your Christmas stocking off Santa. Uh, everyone's been really hyped about the brand new Atari 2600 Plus, the modern 21st century revisioning of the classic Atari console. So we thought, to find out a bit more about it, why don't we welcome on the creator of the new Atari 2600 Plus, who's also the commercial director of Retro at Play On, Ben Jones. Welcome to the show, Ben. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Very good, thank you. And uh, thanks for taking a bit of time to come on the podcast. I know you're actually um, a local lad from Nottingham where we do the podcast. So you and Ravi yeah. were doing a bit of a reminiscing about school rivalries and stuff before we started recording. Yeah, yeah I can't believe it. <laughs> I mean, kind of going back to your childhood, you know, apart from the school rivalries and everything in Nottingham in the 80s, how did um, like playing Atari 2600 when you were a kid kind of influence you? What kind of memories have you got? Have you got some like cosy memories of Atari when you were a little lad? Yeah, definitely. Um, we had one um so i was born in 78 so it was like a machine that had been out for a, a few years but it was definitely one of the first machines that we um we had in the house and yeah obviously stuff like river raid and all that and then can you imagine in like your wildest dreams that like 40 years later you're invited to make a a uh, an updated version of it it's yeah. kind of insane really but yeah, the wooden panel, everything about that uh, generation. It, I was just more slightly going into 16-bit, I think. But yeah, I did, from a very early age, have these 8-bit machines, NES 2600, and then quickly migrated up to SNES and, and, and Mega Drive when I think must have been a teenager then when they came out or, or, or a bit before then. But yeah, the Atari 2600 was a big thing, that. That joystick that used to kill our hands and, and the metal switches and all that and the clunk clunk of the cartridge going in. Yeah, I, I remember um, chewing on one of those joysticks as a baby. Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what, what was your background in electronics then? Well, about um, 17 years ago, I started to talk. To, I made a website in my bedroom where I was selling Nintendo video games. And it kind of like took off and I was just buying stock from one distributor and that was Koch Media. And you can be, you could be looking, you could just, you know, list on a marketplace and somehow, you know, it, it took off. So I had a little bedroom, one man operation selling Nintendo games. And like I said, Koch was the distributor and it, it, it did reasonably well. 
and I went down to meet them a, a couple of times. And it was funny. I kept on advising them to say, look, the, your website's broken here, here, and here. I think basically the boss just got irritated with me <laughs> criticizing his website. And he said, well, why don't you come down here and fix it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and he offered me a job. So I initially started just doing website management for them. They're a distribution company, so business to business selling, you know, all software for all modern platforms. But particularly at that point, they were a um, preferred distributor of Nintendo products. And it was, you know, the Wii and the DS heyday. So it was great to be around now. I've obviously been a, a Nintendo fan as well all my life. Mm. So it's great to get involved in there. And the journey into products, the journey to here, was basically that there was um, a distributor, a competitor distributor that started to obviously be very successful with plastic tennis rackets and plastic baseball bats that you would attach to your Wii controller. You remember all that? Yes, that? yeah. 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 <laughs> I, th I think Virtua Tennis had, um, had yeah, one that actually I mean, came with it, yeah. Absolutely, uh, uh, absolutely just just not worthwhile at all really i think and my boss basically said look these guys are making loads of money we're a preferred distributor of nintendo let's um let's get together because he knew that i had a, a a contact out in the far east in hong kong and i just hooked him up i hooked up with him i says can you get me a thousand cases for a nintendo ds he said yes mm. brought these cases over and because we're obviously the official distri uh, preferred distributor of Nintendo at the time, it was very easy to start bundling these kind of accessories together. So I started off with very simple things like plastic cases, like material cases, and then it morphed into these plastic tennis rackets and baseball bats, and it just kept growing and growing. And then I started to move into more complicated things like I licensed, this is a weird one, I licensed the Doctor Who brand and made a, a Wii remote based on the Sonic screwdriver. Oh, oh nice. nice. And that, that's one of my favorite ever uh, pieces of work. So it's a great device. And so I just started to get more and more into that accessories side. And um, yeah, it just you know, did licenses with, with like um, Peppa Pig and, and stuff like that because they were, you know, remember the DS? It was it was insane how many licensed games were out there and i could always make an accessory with the game and that so mm. that's where that's where this this kind of job came from was was that kind of area and um well that all tanked when the wii and ds went mm. <laughs> <laughs> had to look uh, at the next thing <laughs> yeah uh, well i mean uh, i think i remember somebody saying um why don't you get into ipad and iphone cases and of course like because I just marched into the Wii and DS accessories market, I thought, yeah, well, that'd be easy. Just make some cases and that. But no, it, it's not the same. You need to ensure that you've got like your access to retail all sewn up. And then we were approached by a company called Retro Games Limited, and they um, were talking about bringing a Commodore 64 to market, a retro device. So... A mini console, of course, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. they dreamt up the C64, and uh, I was involved because of my links to China um, and all my experience with logistics and all that. I, um, yeah, I helped them manufacture the C64, which was a 
real great success and a fantastic machine. Still see videos coming out of it now. And then they went on to continue releasing machines like the VIC-20, the big one with a working keyboard, and then they did a C64. People call it a Maxi in Europe, but I don't, yes. I don't, we, don't, we don't like the Maxi name, really. I don't think in, in the UK. It has connotations. Yeah, it's hard um, to shake that off, isn't it? That, uh... Yeah, but what, what else did they call it? I mean, if the C64, I don't think it's got a suffix, actually. Full just, size or something, I think. I see full size, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. could be it. But it sounds uh, like, that, I mean, yeah, I mean, it sounds like, you know, that working on these products then, it definitely set you up for what you've done with, you know, what, Cotches is play on these days. Yeah. Uh, the company renamed itself a couple of years ago. So let's yeah. talk a bit about just getting into the, the 2600 Plus. Tell us how those initial discussions with Atari began and how did you get involved in recreating something as iconic as the 2600? How it started was that, I, th- if I remember correctly, I think I was introduced to maybe Wade Rosen by our CEO, so he, Wade Rosen's the current CEO of um, Atari. Maybe somebody associated, I can't quite remember, but it was basically to do with selling the VCS in Europe. You know, the console that they made about three or four years ago. Yeah, that modern, modern console. Steam box yeah. type thing. Yeah. And so we're talking about that um, for a while. Nothing really came of it. Um, it just didn't really, it just didn't, make make sense i think for us in the end um but i mean like i was saying earlier all these trinkets and all these things that i made earlier i'm an ideas guy so i'm always like thinking of products that could possibly be attractive to a consumer and we were t- i did have a, a an idea about a, a different atari machine um, but then one one day, it was a real a real clear in my mind. The guy at Atari just went, right, we've been talking for a long time and um, to you, Ben, and we've also been talking a, a, a long time internally about bringing the Atari 2600 back. Holy moly. Um, I was like, yeah. So I played it pretty cool, if I remember, on the uh, call. But then when the call went down, I was like real punch in the air. Because yeah, I, thought, well, <laughs> I bet. I knew this was the one. Mm. I knew this was the one because the Atari 2600, apart from its incredible indus- industrial design and aesthetics, it, it to me signifies the beginnings of home video uh, interchangeable car playback, really. But that one was the one, right? You know, licensed games and wonderful. I was I was going to mention that, the licensing, you know, um, having the Atari brand and the actual, you know, original designs all available. Um, how did that kind of help? And, you know, having the uh, those kind of key principles, what, what, what drove the design on the Atari well, that's 2600? A, that's, that's a great question. I've been thinking about it a lot recently and uh, everyone always – I mean, the general sentiment is very positive about the uh, hardware and, and the way it looks and that. And it's kind of funny, isn't it? Because all I got to do is copy the original. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so, so everybody is very kind in that and says these nice things, but it's just an attention to detail to ensure that you mimic the original's look. I mm. mean, there's obviously a slight change in size, but everything else, I mean, it's just... Look at the original machine. Ensure that your CAD designer is putting it into a 3D model as perfectly as possible. Then 
get 3D prints made and then just keep reviewing, keep tweaking, make sure everything is, you know, like the amount of ribs that are on the front of the machine has to be this, the same as the original. Yeah. The amount of like the way that the metal levers look, it has, they have ribs on it. Uh, really small, but. And if you get that like, wrong, people will notice. Yeah, it's such an iconic design, design, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's just back and forth. But, yeah, I mean, really just blessed with having that original design to just just copy copy from, really. Now, I'm interested, you mentioned about, you know, the, the fact that the, the 2600 Plus is smaller. It's about, I'd say, about 80% of the size of the original. Why yeah. did you decide to make it a bit smaller then? Was it purely just, a, you know, I imagine that the cost of shipping larger units in boxes, that kind of thing, if it didn't need to be any bigger? I don't know. Sometimes things just happen. I mean, I had a couple of Atari 2600 originals sent over to me, and I always think, this is a chunky unit. This is big. I mean, you could kill somebody with those those big old heavy sixes and that. And, of course, over the last few years, there's been a great... Uh, there's been loads of these mini machines coming out, but this isn't really a mini. Mm. I just said... To, I, I don't know exactly remember how it, how it came about, but I just said to the CAD designer and the 3D printer, make one a little bit smaller. Let's see what it looks like. And they made one and I sat it un- underneath my TV and I just I just really liked it. I liked the proportions. I liked the way that the levers sit in that top faceplate. There isn't any spare. Um, it's symmetrical. It's things like that. It just, just kind of looked right. Um, I mean, there's slight savings on things like shipping and things like that. Um, but one interesting thing about the 80% size that it's actually the smallest it can be mm. because if you go any smaller than 80, 80%, the cartridge slot doesn't look – you have to you have to mess around with the faceplate-like scale. So yeah, you would start to lose that instant – it would look like an uncanny valley machine, if yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. <laughs> so, yeah, no real reason apart from I thought it looked nice. <laughs> I was wondering um, what kind of like market research went into the audience for this because, um, you know, it appeals to that older crowd, but also the new ones. So who would you say is the kind of uh, core core audience for this console? Oh, great question. Um, you know, this market's very niche. So it's always only a few people that make these machines and, you know, it's, it's mostly engineers and then be somebody in licensing and things like that. And... When we started, well, we'd already kind of done the deal with Atari, and then I got um, allocated a a marketing team. So you have like shared resources in in, in companies like this. So I'm just a, a one man unit with a graphic designer, but we have sales teams, we have marketing teams, finance teams, and you kind of, I kind of plug into each one in a certain way, and I got allocated a team of these uh, the marketeers. About three three of them worked on it and uh yeah the first thing he says is yeah we're gonna get a marketing agency to do like some market research and i was like oh what on earth okay and it was i was pretty uh pretty shocked at the price but they basically came they, they were to advise on exactly what you said like target audience and you know they did a bit of help with branding and things like that and I mean, you know, if you want some bedtime reading, I think I could send it you. I think it was about 80 pages long. And it just talked about 
me think. Talked about things like Stranger uh, Stranger Things influences and mm. how retro has been building over the past ten or fifteen years. I mean, none of it was a big big surprise because you always think you kind of know it. But for somebody to write it in a report, it was like, ah, oh, yeah, it's kind of validation for the market. And the market, of course, that they instantly told me to go for was the 40 to 55 market. Um, and then there's subsequent little segments like there are young people that are interested in retro. I'm always quite surprised at it, that, but, but p- that people choose certain um, generations of machines and go back, even like people in their 20s and, 20s and that. So mm. that was the kind of market research we did and also um did did you know that there was going to be like a line of games coming out for it as well because when we first saw it we thought maybe it was just for like the older titles or older collectors but then obviously all these titles started coming out yeah the xp range yeah from day one mate from day one um exactly they had the xp range that they've atari have had the xp range which they've been releasing games every quite quite prolifically to be honest and so that was a part of the thinking and of course we don't have any games preloaded on the machine it was always to be a cartridge a multi-cart and then i just thought or we thought that um you know we've got we need a paddle set atari have got paddle games sitting there that that, that, that we can that we can utilize and then, I don't know whether it was somebody at Digital Eclipse, but somebody that Atari have got links with said that they had a enhanced version of Berserk. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. Um, because reissues are great, you know, love them, but to give people a slight enhancement to it, it makes it, you're getting your reissue. But you're also getting it, you know, with a couple of quality of life improvements, maybe, and and, and Berserk was that. And then my favourite was Mr. Run and Jump. From the minute I seen it, I said to Atari, I really want to release this alongside the machine. Because then we've got a nice selection. You've got the 10 games, all varied, coming with the machine. You've got four decent paddle games coming with the paddle set. Berserk is a kind of a, a reissue, but enhanced, and then a brand new game. So it's a nice, compact selection. And I think there's a press release recently from Atari and Play On. There's four more new games coming. Mm. Um, I don't think we've announced the, the titles, but um, that should be happening. And then behind the scenes, I mean, the response to the machine itself and it's just we're honestly people at Atari are absolutely fizzing, and, and and here with me at Play On, absolutely fizzing with ideas what we can we can do, and bring out cartridges next year. I think there'll certainly be a few more um, cartridges come out. What's nice about it is that if you get it right, it's a relatively low barrier to entry. Mm. Because the amount of cartridges that you need to to sell is attainable, really, and uh, be nice to have breakouts that that, that that go crazy. But just to give collectors and people that the opportunity to to buy either reissues 
or enhanced editions. I mean, look at the homebrew scene of the yeah. 2670. They are insane games that people are making even today. So there's this, I'm sure there's talk about bringing them over for a more wider release. And then, of course, there's things like D-Makes, which I'm particularly interested at the minute. So that's taking a, 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 a modern intellectual property and then making a, a 2600 game or a 7800 game from it. Um, yeah, I saw the Halo D-Make. Yeah, that Halo. was impressive by Ed Freeze. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and that's really exciting because you have... Halo was a bit of a weird one because they went from like a 3D shooter to a 2D kind of thing. But there's there's nothing you, you can do. But that's the one that really excites me is mm. to, to to build games from the ground up using intellectual property. However, the only problem of that is that you're building something from the ground up with a reissue. Mm. Of course, you just you can dump a ROM on a cartridge bish bash bosh you're out in a couple of weeks making atari 2600 games particularly is quite a challenge mm. i um remember playing mr run jump and i was like i gotta speak to this guy i've got to get the, who made this game i want to make him i want him to make me in a game and uh i said it to atari and, and they contacted it, the guy and as far as i recall it was something like uh yeah the 2600 game, I had to code it in assembly. It almost broke me. It took me like a thousand, <laughs> thousand hours. Uh, never again. I was like, okay. So that's the thing. Those limitations can make it more difficult, can't they? Because you've got to fit oh, within absolutely. the constraints of the system and the RAM and the processor. And Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's no middleware tools and that mm. for 2600 game making. You know, I'm interested in, you know, when you're at that design concept stage, um, obviously you mentioned then that the idea was, you know, to make it cartridge only from the beginning. So, you know, it could play the original carts as well. Obviously, when you're designing a, a project like this, I guess there's always a danger that you'll get, I think, what's termed feature creep, you know, where you add too much into it. I mean, did you ever consider enabling it to play ROMs or having like a Wi-Fi chip and a store in there? Or was it important that it was just a cartridge based system? Yeah, of course. We talk about those things all day long. I get a lot of flack. I'm on Atari Age at the minute, and I get a lot of flack for it not having CRT scan lines. I don't know whether you mentioned it in your uh, your yeah, I've uh, seen a few people mention, and yeah. I was like, oh my goodness! I went on a surreal like fa- flight of fancy with one of them on Atari Age, and I said like something like, yeah, I just got a flux capacitor, and I went back to 1979, and you know, I met up with David Crane, and I showed him what we were doing in 2023. And I said, yeah, we bought the Atari VCS back in 2023 and we play it on 75-inch flat screen TVs. <laughs> and then I was continued on this thing and I said, and I said to David, I said, uh, David, you know that like in 2023, people actually layer images of CRT scan lines over the top of a crisp image like that. And like I just said, and David said, why the hell would anybody want to do that? <laughs> and that's my personal personal view. But I know it gives people uh, that nostalgic hit. And I think, I mean, I think I, I've written a couple of times that I'm going, you know, just because I have a personal view about something, um, it shouldn't preclude the machine giving people options that they want to have. Mm. And for sure... I mean, we've got a quite a sizable update coming very soon, and I think a, a secondary update will pro- probably be one that adds 
CRT filters I've got to bow down to, of course. Um, maybe save states and maybe a few other little quality of life things that people u- are used to. But I don't like it. Um, you know what it reminds me of? You know, when you get, um, when CDs first took off and then you'd occasionally get artists who'd put the, the vinyl crackle on the actual song on a CD. Yeah. Reminds me a bit of that, you know. That, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. That's a good analogy. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, the, the, the way that I've got a problem with it was always with a menu. I like the cleanness of the Atari 2000. You put in a game in, you know what game you're playing, you're just playing the game. That's That's the end of it. And my problem was always with like having a pause menu or something. It just kind of, for me, breaks that authenticity. But I have to think of, of a way of doing it, you know, that, that is tasteful and that, 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 that is in a style of the 2600. But yeah, there's a few quality of life things that for certain I'm going to have to maybe a bit reluctantly bring, <laughs> bring into an update in the future for sure. Well, it's uh, yeah, it's great that you can kind of send updates nowadays as well. And um, I, I found it interesting that it's also compatible with the uh, uh, 7,800 cartridges mm. as well. Mm. And uh, w- w- would there be any further plans for compatibility with anything else? I never wanted to do the 7,800 compatibility because it was really hard um, having two um, emulators running and uh, we're trying to trying to convince Atari not to do it for like weeks and months. And I mean, oh, it's too difficult. It's going to do this and that. But Atari just basically um, said, you got to do it. And we were going to come out earlier, but the development to get a 7800 compatibility was like put in and, and it came out a little bit later. I mean, the compatibility with the 7800 is obvious, right? Because the same cartridge shape. Yeah. Although it's got, I think, is it 12 more pins on either side of the PCB? So we had to adapt our cartridge socket halfway through development. Not a biggie. But, um, I mean, well, what what other compatibility are we talking about? 5200. Those cards are different, aren't they, as well? Yeah, yeah physically, yeah. I mean, maybe we could do, like, remember those, like, hooky uh, cartridge adapters that you used to get for, like, Mega Drives and that, where you could put a Master System card yes, and yeah. stuff like that? <laughs> I, wonder, cool. I mean, it'd be something that I'd, I, I would for sure look into, um, but it's it that one to me seems, oh, well, basically I've got more important things to make sure that we get right with the machine software right now mm. uh, than that. Because. Although having what one system that could play all the like you know the, the Atari eight bit kind of systems ROM you know cartridges would be pretty cool I think yeah yeah, yeah. I mean we we just got to see how it how, how it how it pans out to be honest um, we have to see how much legs the machine has next year mm. I'm pretty confident we'd be selling it for quite a while this machine's not really got a time limit, has it? It's no. not got a technological, <laughs> you know, <barriers. laughs> not going to be outdated next year. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and yeah, the nostalgia piece will just, will just keep giving as long as we keep. So at first we're going to give these update dates, you know, let make it best in class, make sure nobody on Atari age can moan about feet, something that's wrong, a, a compatibility. And we are absolutely mo- motoring through, uh, an, an update at the minute you know you've got 1080p come in we've got uh 5060 um you know regions like pal and ntsc yeah 
at the minute the machine only out update uh, outputs in 60 hertz which causes a, a few little glitches which of course people rightly flame me for so that's that's already done i've been testing it what else have we got a massive lot of um, updates to the 7800 gameplay which will enable things like homebrew titles to work and there was a a bit of an unfortunate thing where there's a quite a difference sometimes between PAL and NTSC 7800 games. So we got to some, I tested all 50, I think I tested 54 out of the 58 uh, 7800 games, but they were all NTSC. They mm. work perfectly. There's about eight 7800 PAL games that they're just put together differently. So there's all things like that that being fixed. Once you then have that, hopefully, somewhat of a best-in-class platform, it enables you. It will enable us to then think about games, mm-hmm. all these things that we've b- began the conversation with, that were reissues, homebrews, and that. And then I'd also consider: s- s- can we make a cartridge adapter to put f- fifty-two hundred games in? Maybe. So that's the kind of thing that we'll do because the work on the software at the moment. Although it's quite a lot, it's finite. Yeah. Once the machine is running, uh, scrolling perfectly, whatever hurts, whatever resolution, no glitches, you're done. So it's nice for me to think, well, I'm going to be close to, to get into that position. Imagine not having to update the machine anymore because you've basically kind of got it to a level where it should be. Yeah. That's a dream, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm sure people will always uh, find little oddments and that bizarre carts that don't work, but it's had a good start. It needs to be great. And once it is, yeah, it opens up the thought processes to, yeah, I think just making games. How would the updates work on it? Is that you put it on a USB stick and just put it in? Is that how that works? No, it's, um, it's not the most elegant at the moment, I must admit. Um, you plug it into a, a PC. We're going to put. We're just putting together some instructions at the moment, um, and you use some kind of a flashing tool, and we'll provide the image, and it then flashes the memory on board. Right. It's quite quick. There's a little bit of setup, a couple of minutes, but then the actual flashing of the ROM is about not even a minute. Mm. And uh, no soldering required, I guess. Yeah, no. I mean, it's not as convenient as a Wi-Fi update or anything like that. But I think a, a lot of these people that want the update, they're, they're, they're tech heads anyway. So yeah. it, it will come to know it won't be anything too strenuous for them to do an update. So... Yeah. You know, if we're talking about the kind of, you know, the modern, the mod cons, you know, the, the quality of life features that you mentioned mm. there, you know, for modern users, mm. kind of, you know, getting that balance right as well, you know, the, the mixture between, obviously you need HDMI on there because, you know, no one really has SCART or anything like that anymore, or RF, mm. for example. Um, how did you kind of get that balance then and what kind of features did you think were important to include on the system? Which ones did you, was there any you considered that you left out in the end? Yeah, loads. Hmm. I mean, I met with um, a guy at Atari every Monday for about a year, and that's what we would thrash out, exactly what we wanted in and what we wanted out. We're currently having a discussion with him at the minute about a uh, Wi-Fi, uh, a wireless CX40. Right. I don't think some people are too keen on it. I'm very keen on it because I play it here using this wireless um, CX40, and it's such a joy not to have a cable, to be honest. 
And there was precedence because back in the day, there were CX40 joysticks that were wireless, albeit they had like a huge antennae coming out of them. So, the yeah, everything was thought about really deep. Yeah, it was, it was just decision after decision and, and just thinking about it and reviewing it and and going and going back to it and yeah a constant cycle it was about six months part-time work six months of very heavy full-time work and, mm. and back and forward get i mean so many decisions and, and that that you have to make about the products that that's what it takes and then you get the final result yeah. You know, the, the joystick itself, I think, you know, the recreation of that is really, really well done. And in my video, I actually opened it up and had a look inside at the board. And, and I know you've done some improvements on the original yeah. CX40 design as well, you know, making it actually better quality than the original, I'd say, by the looks of it. Um, how did you approach kind of recreating that then and getting that balance right? Because it does feel like the original, which I think is probably the most important thing, isn't it? If it felt totally different, then I think fans would complain. <sighs> yeah great one i probably spent an equal amount of time or maybe even more time on the joystick than i did with the machine because the joystick required really to be re-engineered due to the fact that just the way that the original was inside with those i did actually you know there's like metal domes that they had instead of the elastomers back in the day and yeah and, you know a lot of the ones that i bought the domes were flattened with use and the way that the stick inside, you know, the main shaft, the way that the 2600 originally had a nice kind of mushy end to the to directional push, that's some really interesting plastic engineering and where it kind of like, it has an extra O-ring that goes around it that like, that you push into. It, it's not really natural because it, you can see that you're straining this o-ring and you can see that and, and there's lots of reports online uh, that, that i read where yeah they, they just snapped and i thought well we, we obviously can't have anything like that we want the machine you know when we're building things like this the fear of returns uh, product returns from amazon is the and retailers in general is one of the biggest so mm. to ensure that the machine is as durable and the accessories, the joystick and the paddles are as, as durable as they possibly can be is really high because every single uh, return that you get from the likes of uh, online retail and then bricks and mortar retail is a massive loss because there's nothing you can do with returned um, electronic things like that. Really? I mean, I mean, it's, it's soul destroying really because where when I've done previous um, reviews of returned units, I say like a hundred units in the warehouse, all returned, Ben. I say, mm. all right, send them over. Let me have a look at them. Yeah. 90% of them, absolutely nothing wrong with it. So yeah, that's just a user that, error then was it? <laughs> generally? No, it's just yeah. um, very generous consumer protection laws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, everybody being a consumer are very pro it. But when you're the manufacturer, you're like, God damn. Because what do you do with the machine? What would I do with the 2600 as a business? What would I do with the 2600 that's returned, even if it's in perfect condition? Yeah. Somebody's had their hands on it. Yeah. Somebody's like screwed it in and, and, uh, I mean, plugged things in. 
nothing you can do with it. But back onto the uh, question of durability and, and, and the joystick is, yeah, we we really we really worked on that for a long time. I was um, constantly at first the I I got samples and that from the factory that was like were the 3D prints, and it was. You know, a lot of these um, CX40 joysticks you see nowadays that, that are sold, they're very like like switchy feeling, like it's very definite. There's a little, there's a hard stop. So it's yeah. quite nice to play games like Pac-Man with that. But I was just like, when well, are we making the 2600? You know, even if people hated the CX40 back in the day, I don't care. It needs to yeah. feel exactly the same. So it was always a case of, you know, re- revising the th- the throw of the joystick. The, I used to call it the schmushiness yes. <laughs> of the feel. Um, there's a slight change to the feel of the button, but that's really was unavoidable. The original used like a spring mechanism, and I think it went onto one of those metal domes. And yeah, we, we in 2023, the only way really for for me to go was to use those elastomers, but. Even the elastomers very deeply thought about. I'd always have lots of different. They all have like weights, like they're rated for like the pressure of when it's like activated. You know the pop. Yes. And we always have lots of different weights of elastomers, and and I carefully after I'm doing it now. I'm closing my eyes, and you have to move the joystick around, press the button, and just no, I don't like that one. That's that's too poppy, and then that's light. I think we ended up on one of the lightest elastomers for the button but actually for the joystick directional movement it's quite a heavy elastomer pop but funnily enough it doesn't pop in your hands it kind of just squishes <laughs> and that's the thing because to me yeah. I, you know having it side by side with the original and i mentioned this about the, the switches on the device as well on the console i mean they feel a bit like stiff to move some of them but then i'm looking at my 2600 i think well this thing's 40 years old maybe they were a bit stiffer 40 years ago no, they weren't. Right, okay. <laughs> That's well, I can tell you about. I can enough. tell you about yeah. that. Okay. Um, we got the levers on the right hand side absolutely plumb, perfect. Yeah. Um, but the two on the left, I was never ever ever happy with them. And if you take the machine apart and you get the switch, the switch in your hand without the plastic that then goes into the metal lever, and you switch it on and off, it's much easier. It's. I think it's because we have maybe two or three pieces of plastic and, of course, the metal on the top. There's some kind of, like, I don't know what the word is. Is it like, there's some, some kind of, like, kinetic resistance and because there's so many of these layers of plastic that just make it a bit too hard. Right. The factory uh, looked for even lighter ones. And this is, this is the lightest one you're going to get, Ben. So in the end... It, it, it was it, it's, it's a for me it's a bit a uh, bit too stiff but it's not a, it's not a breaker of anything so I'll it tell you one loo- thing it that might did, loosen up in time <laughs> I, 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 got, I don't think they will <laughs> I um I got a good one um talking about the levers I was actually going on annual leave at the point of the announce of the machine. And press press were getting their machines and that, and the marketers. I think it was at Gamescom this year. Yeah, it was at Gamescom. And we had our marketing and PR teams 
out there demoing it and uh you know when you get emails and 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 that that just your heart absolutely sinks mm. so basically some of these um and they were pre-production but they were basically production machines were being tested by uh were being demoed by the marketing department to press and then i got this email from um somebody in marketing it says yeah i was just demoing this to one of the biggest journalists in germany and the on off switch broke in my fingers oh wow like, oh my god that's not what you want to hear <laughs> i've just manufactured containers of this machine and of course i sit there all day switching things on and off on and off and they go through loads of testing but sometimes you can you can miss something anyway it was such a it was such a rapid redemption because I sent this fiery email off to the um, factory. I was, look at this. Look at this. The bloody power button breaks when people just switching it off and on. As I was ranting on this email to them, and then this, in the morning they got back to me and they said, uh, yeah, it's all all right, Ben. It's all all right. That switch was actually a pre-production one, and it right. has like a hole in the middle. But on the production models, we filled the hole, and it's made of a, more, a, a different plastic, which is stronger. So I went from like crisis going to bed <laughs> to waking up in the morning with this email. I was like, oh, thank God, because they're the things that yeah. just kill you. <laughs> I bet that was a sleepless night. Yeah, yeah. I, I can imagine away from the um, kind of hardware, you know, the emulation software is really important as yeah, well. And uh, especially having stuff like no lag and stuff. I was uh, wondering what it's based on. Well, you, you got to go to the best. Yeah. You have to go to the best. The best is Stella. And I actually contacted the Stella team, I think about a day or two after Atari and PlayOn had agreed to go forward with it. So this was definitely a year ago. Easy. And I said to them, um, and at that point, I didn't really have much of a clue of how I was going to make it. So I have access to developers of, of retro things but you know this one i wasn't quite sure so i contacted the the stellar team and they were, they were really interested really really kind but they didn't want to do any work there's like a hobby for them and it's like there's a quite a a thing between the enthusiast crowd and then moving over to a, like a commercial proposition like that is and and some people aren't down with it and some some people are and um it was so funny though because they didn't they didn't want to take a consultancy and do the work but then would write me emails with all this fantastic detailed information mm. and i was like well this is insanely good what you're doing what you're, you were doing just writing this to me and i think did i send them a p very early pcb or schematics and um there's a guy called Thomas, and he, he's pretty much the apex of 2600 emulation, and he's, he's the, a key member of Stella. And he just basically railed against what what was being suggested, again, like my, what I, what the main chip was. There's, there's two important chips with the 2600: the CPU, and there's also a cart dumping chip, and that's really important because the cart dumping chip takes the information from the cartridge. And like puts it into a format that then can be read by the emulator and then and then it, it, it plays 
and like i was i was getting obviously from my colleagues at the factories getting these uh suggestions of what sh- sh- we should use and yes tom was like railing at me do not do this <laughs> don't have this chip you need more power and yeah i i took notice of everything that they said to be honest with you i had to redesign stuff on multiple occasions due to that guy due to those guys um advice that they they gave me so although i never contracted work to them they certainly gave me a a, a lot of advice at the beginning and also recently since i've been coming a bit more active on atari age there's so much information coming from them and the com- community also so i had a they 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 were really key um and on the 7800 side i just used an off-the-shelf emulator didn't have any um conversations with the developer it was quite a an old emulator and a, mm. relatively stable so that was it yeah in terms of you mentioning they're going on to atari age there and interacting directly with the community have they influenced the development of the 2600 at all i mean you mentioned stuff like you know that the crt filters that are hopefully coming in an update anything else they've kind of given you input or feedback on that you've taken on board well, it's difficult not to when you're reading them flaming you every day. Mm-hmm. But flaming me, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of nice, positive comment. Yeah, of course. I mean, one thing that's really interesting that's happening at the moment, I just keep looking at it and reading it and laughing, is that I set up a, I think we've got 100,000 views or something on, on the uh, the main Atari 2600 plus channel. So I raided the samples cupboard, found, you know, one of them VIP kits, yeah. found a load of games, and I set up a competition on Atari Age. And I said, basically, I've got all this stuff and give it away because of all the uh, views and that. It was like a celebration of t- two weeks of after launch and that. And I, and I only thought, I thought, uh, the only thing that I'm going to say is you enter this competition by posting a reply in this thread and telling me what game or games you'd like to see in the future. Again, it could be a reissue, could be a homebrew, could be a demake, could be anything. Well, these guys have been just posting all this fantastic suggestions. And I was saying it to Atari, this stuff's a goldmine. These people are suggesting things and, and giving us ideas that I never really thought about or, or didn't didn't understand to the level of um, kind of excitement people have. And, and particularly, it's very interesting for me to see on this particular thread, maybe an even split or maybe a little bit more one way is a lot of people want reissues, yeah? A lot of people want, you know, Pac-Man again and that. But then, honestly, I think probably, and this may be, of course, to be expected with Atari Age, but maybe 50 to 60% of people just keep talking about homebrews and the new stuff. And I think primarily that's down to the quality of that homebrew. So, um, yeah, the the community and and, and, and that, it's a a goldmine. And we just, we read everything. And, um, you know, we form... You know, some sometimes I disagree, like CRT filters. But sometimes, <laughs> you know, I just, yeah. I mean, I mean, you, you joke then about being flame, but it's just passion, isn't it? It's a passionate community, and they've got right, strong they're, opinions. They're, they're yeah. so funny. They're so, some of them are so blunt, and I'm like, Christ, 
<laughs> you just to come in here blind. But like some, a lot of them, that's their humor. A lot of them, that's that how how they speak. And like, <laughs> I saw it once when some guy was flaming a newbie, and, and like the newbie like just said something back to him, and the, the guy, the the the, um, the guy that. Uh, like the expert, he says, "Oh, sorry. Oh, you're sorry. I didn't. I didn't mean anything like that. <laughs> I just, just, just the way we talk." So, yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. used to it. Uh, I, I'm used to it. I was wondering as well. You had a a ten in one cartridge yeah. that came bundled with the machine. Um, what were the kind of choices of games, and how was that brought together? Was that done with you and Atari? Yes, it was. Yeah, Atari sent me a big list of games, and I. I had a similar kind of thing when I, I I was lucky enough to make the Capcom Home Arcade where I had to choose 16 of Capcom's arcade classics to put on this machine. I was like, jeez, this is a great job. And similar to that with the Atari, it was to think about a relatively diverse selection, mm. um, try and hit quite a few um, different types of games, and then also think about how big they were. So we knew we had to have adventure. We knew we had to have combat. We knew we had to have Yars Revenge. We knew we had to have Missile Command. Maybe we should have had a couple of other bits that Atari had um, had. Um, but then I just slowly, people at work are always very jealous of me because I'm uh, often just sitting at my desk playing video games all day. And you can see them liking me a, a snide look or something. And I say, I'm doing my research. I have to play. Atari 2,600 <laughs> games all day for weeks on end. Such a grind. It's a hard life. Someone's got to oh, do it. Oh, dear. Yeah, it could be working down the pits, but I'm just playing video games. It's, it's not too bad. So I would, yeah, I would just, and then talk back to Atari, and then, then we would agree they would have their suggestions. One interesting limitation that I don't think anybody knows about with the 10-in-1 and the 4-in-1 is that we people say, Maybe maybe something like, well, why didn't you put Centipede on it? I says, oh, well, fingers here. Every game in the 10-in-1 had to be the same memory size. So you know those 2,600 carts that came in like 2K, 4K, yeah. later on 8K, and even some 16s and 32s? Well, every one in the 10-in-1, it's either a 4K or a 2K, and then it's the same for the 4-in-1. So I had some limitations on the the kind of selection I could have because they all had to be one sort, certain kind of memory type. Uh, interesting. That makes sense, I suppose, when you think about it, yeah. So you're, you're kind of limited by <laughs> they all had to be the same size, otherwise it wouldn't work. Yeah, I'm battling yeah. it with it. I'm battling with it for, for the minute because, mm. I mean, obviously we're talking about releasing new games and that. And, uh, yeah, I definitely need to find a way of having these different sized memory uh, games on one cartridge mm. it's such a limitation yeah if you're looking at like another list and you think well that can't go with that because it's a different so i mean to me it just seems relatively str- in my mind straightforward to somebody can do something here just yeah fake it and make them all 16 mega something i don't know 16 k don't use the extra space yeah there's yeah, loads of space yeah. on these yeah. things. Two I mean, K. Yeah, two K for a game. <laughs> I was looking at like uh, photos now, and it's like, wow, this photo I've just downloaded six meg a photo, a JPEG. Yeah. How many two thousand six hundred games could I fit into this photo? 
Well, Ben, it's been incredible hearing the story of the uh, the development of the twenty six hundred plus. And as I said, you know, as an owner of one of these five machines, I think you know, hats off to the work that you uh, you and the rest of the team there have done. I mean, for you personally, you mentioned at the start that feeling of you know now having forty years later actually worked on recreating this system. What does it mean to you personally then to be part of like the Atari twenty six hundred legacy now? How does that feel? Whoa, 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 whoa. Um. Well, I think I said it to somebody else. It's just, you remember when I told you earlier that like Atari just said to me, yeah, oh, we want you to make a 2600 uh, recreation. And I was like, <sighs> throughout the development of the machine, I constantly remind myself that I'm a custodian of this, 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 this recreation. And that's, that's why, you know, when we talk about those metal levers, talk about the CX40 plus joystick and things like that, always thought that I have to, I have to make sure that that memory that people had of playing the machine is the same memory that they're going to have now. But now you've got a nice 75-inch OLED to play those games on. And um, it was very important for me to, to, to basically not, not mess it up. Um, yeah, very important. Well, as I said, I think you've done an incredible job and the reaction I've seen so far from everyone else that's got hold of one so far has been uh, very positive so can't wait to see what you and the team do next and uh, with these future updates as well so thanks again for coming on Ben and uh, best of luck with it oh, thanks a lot that's really really kind of you cheers when everyone's on the same page getting things done at work is easy no matter what you do or what industry you're in how you communicate is key Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently, so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.